So I was off work yesterday because Victoria can go to to daycare because she has athlete's foot. How does a baby get athlete's foot? Wet boots in winter and sweaty feet. She has sweaty feet. Oh. You should pull Sharon Stone and get Botox put in her feet. (laughs) Well, since she's not even two yet, I think I'll just refrain from that right now. I think Sharon Stone's son was like seven or eight when she did it. So where are we really drawing a line? (laughs) Uh, Maybe if it becomes a persistent problem, I'll be willing to do that by the time she's that age. But uh, yes. (laughs) Because it's contagious, and her and the other kids in her class and daycare, they rarely keep socks on for more than five minutes. Right. So she has shoes and socks on today, trying to keep the socks on her feet. And, like, you've duct taped the shoes to her ankles? (laughs) I don't know. It's not my problem. It's daycare problem. Hopefully she's been okay. And welcome to this new episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And this is episode Dirty 30. <gasps> dirty 30! <laughs> I don't think I... Did I enjoy my... Yeah, I enjoyed my Dirty 30 birthday. I had friends over. But uh, it was very chill. <laughs> it was a while ago, obviously. No, almost <laughs> nine years ago. Uh, we went to New York. I don't know if we went on my birthday or for my birthday, but that was the first time I ever went to New York. Dan took me on a surprise trip. That's cute. Yeah. Nice. Like, he had already booked off with Sarah and work, and I didn't know. (laughs) That's the benefit of working with a friend. Yeah. You can just book off without you knowing. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I had a thought, and I lost it. I can hear the wheels turning. Yeah, it's like a little hamster wheel going like... Yeah. Well, let's get into our episode today. This is Women's History Month. It is. We completely missed the boat on that until you pointed it out during our last get together. And you're like, hey, by the way, we should probably do something about that. It was after our last get together. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we missed International Women's Day. We did. Shame on us. But we're making up for it with at least two episodes. Yes. Pro-women themed. And at least one blog. And at least one blog. So... I think we're doing okay with the sisterhood. We don't have to turn in our cards no. just yet. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> they could come get these cramps, though, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> they want my card, they have to take that, too. Take the cramps, uh, the lower pay for longer work, and the crippling sense of guilt every time you have to disappoint someone. Yes. I'm willing to give up all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about it, and because I went first last time, Andy's going to go first this time. So it's appropriate because you kind of set the tone and the themes for this episode anyway. So I did. Why don't you go ahead and tell us your story? So I'm doing women musicians. So this is a list of women that I either personally find interesting, fascinating, or inspiring, or just plain kick ass. I had originally 10 women, but I've already reached four pages when I left. My ladies, I already had four pages, 2,000, over 2,000 words. So I was like, mm, I think I'm good for yeah. my half hour. <laughs> We're covered. Uh, so this is just like a list that is mine. Uh, not that I don't find Beyonce kick-ass, but these women are just higher on my personal list or more obscure. I also made a playlist for Elise. Yes. She could uh, 
you know, feel a little bit more knowledgeable <laughs> about some of these people that she might not know. Less of that slack-jawed, I don't know what you're talking about look on my face, yeah. But it might be the oddest mix on Spotify. <laughs> it probably is, because I went from Hildegard to Bingen all the way to Joan Jett in like 2.4 seconds, and I was like whiplash. I didn't know what the fuck was happening. <laughs> They're next to each other on the list, but they did not make the cut yeah. for, my, for my notes. <laughs> They're going to be my blog. Um... So as Elise noted, some of the songs have male frontmen, so it's not just front women, but just musicians. And in no particular order, here's my list. So one of the more fascinating, uh, not most fascinating, but uh, one of probably the first really popular female drummers is Mo Tucker from The Velvet Underground. Okay, that explains why The Velvet Underground was on the list then. Um, so she was 19. So Maureen Mo Tucker was just 19 when she took up the drums and 21 when she joined the Velvet Underground. She was one of, if not the first, female drummer in a popular and iconic band. When asked about this, she said, I don't know if any other girls that were playing drums, but it never occurred to me to care. It wasn't an issue. <laughs> Fair. There was never a question by anybody, and there was never a remark or a comment by anybody, including other musicians. No one ever said, oh, a girl playing drums. That's not cool. It was no big deal. They seem to make more of it today than they did then. I mean, I guess. If that's her perception, like, probably true. <laughs> yep. So, Mo was known for her androgynous appearance, but in spite... The fact it was the start of the 60s and punk rock, she said that she never experienced difficulties due to sexism that was common in that time, as we just heard her say. Well, she's a fucking unicorn then. She was. <laughs> uh, she's also a bit of an odd cat, as was the whole Velvet Underground. Um, her style of playing is really unconventional still to this day. She played standing out rather than seated. Ugh. For easier access to the bass drum. Already I'm out. <laughs> she used a simplified drum kit of tom-toms, a snare drum, and an upturned bass drum, which she played with mallets rather than drumsticks. Hmm. Um, she rarely used cymbals. She claimed that since she felt the purpose of drumming was simply to keep time, cymbals were unnecessary for this purpose and drowned out the other instruments. Hmm. Rock critic Robert Kriska said of Tucker, Mo was... A great drummer in a minimalist, limited, autodilatic way that I think changed music history. She was where the punk notion of how beats work began. She wasn't just the drummer, though. She also provided co-lead vocals on a number of tracks. And if you listen to the playlist, you can click on uh, the song Sunday Morning and listen to her very unique drumming. Hmm. Like, it's very uh, noticeable. Mm-hmm. on the tracks that she drummed for. And she was the main drummer for the Velvet Revolver. Uh, Velvet Revolver. Very different band. Velvet <laughs> Underground. With the exception of uh, when she left uh, for her kids. So she had a couple of kids, so she took time off. And they toured with a couple of different drummers. But, hmm. yeah, mostly she was their drummer. They had an original drummer who thought uh, they sold out when they started taking pain gigs. Oh, no. That's terrible. Yeah. One should never be paid for their art. Fuck that. Speaking of which, head over to our Patreon page. <laughs> to please pay us for our art. art. <laughs> As we use quotes. Air quoted that. Uh, the next one is St. Vincent. So Annie Clark is professionally known as St. Vincent. She is an indie artist with five critically acclaimed solo albums. Her fourth album, self-titled St. Vincent, set critics alight with it ranking number one on the best of year charts by pretty much everybody. Hmm. 
The Guardian, Entertainment Weekly, and NME and Slat and Time. Her unorthodox musical style has been characterized by critics as a mixture of chamber rock, pop, indie rock, and cabaret jazz. She also is producing an album for Slater Kinney, a riot girl band from the 90s. And in 2019, she made her film directorial debut with helming one of the segments of an all-female directed horror anthology called Film XX. Hmm. Cool. So one of the reasons I highlighted her, because it's not, her music isn't really doesn't speak to me on many levels, but she is one of the few female guitarists that has a signature guitar. Ernie Ball Guitars has a St. Vincent guitar line so that she helped mm-hmm. create. And uh, the mark of any good signature guitar line is when other artists pick it up. And it's quite popular. Um, people like Jack White have a St. Vincent guitar that he quite likes to play. It has a very different sound. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of this strange mixture, and it's a, a slightly slimmer profile some rumors were that it's like more attuned for a female body she's like no that's just how she likes her guitars right uh, has nothing to do with the fact that she's a f- well she's a female so of course they're gonna make everything of course about it but anyway i'm assuming uh, they're all issued in shades of pink no they're, they're really a cool looking <laughs> uh, interesting looking guitar just how it's set up is, is quite different from uh, a lot of other guitars which made it and the fret which gives it a straight slightly tangier twangier note Makes it quite interesting. Hmm. Alan Cross, in his uh, guitar, Women Guitar Heroes, had Mm -hmm. a little section on her where she talks about creating her guitar and how that sort of process went and stuff. Cool. Yeah. My next one is Billie Holiday. Yes. Another quick change of pace during my listen session to the to the playlist because it went from Velvet Underground to Billie Holiday. I was like, I don't know what the fuck is happening right now. <laughs> Welcome to the roller coaster listeners if you yes. decide to click on our playlist, which I will share. <laughs> Buckle in. So Billie Holiday was born Eleanor Fagan on April 7th, 1915 in Philadelphia. She had a tough upbringing with her mom, Sadie, being a single mom and Billy's frequent skipping of schools. This landed her and her mom in court for truancy. Apparently they did that back then too in oh, the yeah. States. Quite recently too, if yeah. not in some counties still doing it. Yeah, oh yeah, they do it, they do it all the time in Texas. Uh, which resulted in her being sent to a school for troubled African-American girls. Oh boy. In her mid-teens, she was singing in clubs around Harlem until she was discovered by John Hammond at age 18. She recorded vocals on a number of tracks, given her a growing body of work. This was also the time that she started working with the Count Bassey Orchestra and the artist Shaw and his orchestra. With Shaw, she became one of the first African-American female singers to work with a white orchestra. Hmm. However, promoters objected to Holiday for her race. Shocker! It was mm-hmm. 1938. Of course they did. And for her unique vocal style, and she ended up leaving the orchestra out of frustration. But this is what brought her to her solo career. So striking out on her own, Holiday performed at the New York Cafe Society. She developed some of her trademark stage personas there, wearing gardenias in her hair and singing with her head tilted back. This is where she debuted two of her most famous songs, God Bless the Child and Strange Fruit. Columbia, her record company at the time, was not interested in Strange Fruit, which was a powerful song about lynching of African Americans in the South. Hmm. So she recorded the song with the Commodore label instead. Strange Fruit is considered to be one of her signature ballads, 
and the controversy that surrounded it, which included some radio stations banning the record, helped make it a hit. Her life was a mess of bad relationships, drugs, and booze. Oh. She was arrested many times for uh, possession. She was married a bunch of times. One of her first husbands had an opioid addiction, so he's just, like, smoking. Like, good old-fashioned opium? Yeah, like Sherlock Holmes-style opium. Yep. And she got into that, and then she got uh, into heroin. Hmm. So her heroin addiction was so bad that shortly before her death, she was arrested for possession while in the hospital, very ill. Dang, yo. Yeah. This would be one of the last of her many arrests. She died at the age of 44. <gasps> That's from young. complications due to... Drug use. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Um, she had multiple organ failures, I think, liver and stuff like that. Hmm. Over 3,000 people attended her funeral. Uh, to this day, her legacy lives on. In 2000, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, we all still talk about Strange Fruit as such a great song. And if you have never listened to it, I suggest you do. Preferably alone with your eyes closed. It is a chilly and an emotional song that should remind us about a past that is not so long ago. And that justice was never served for those Strange Fruit. Hmm. Cool. But yeah, she was a mess. Her life was a mess. She was married a bunch of times. Those men took advantage of her because she was, well, an addict. Yeah. So kind of easy to take advantage easy of. Easy mark, and, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for my left turn again. No oh boy. New York. Yes. <laughs> Bjork started singing, and I was typing up notes for my own story, and like I picked up her voice, like, is that fucking Bjork? <laughs> Jesus. What is happening? What have you done to me, Andy? Yeah. Uh, Bjork, obviously, the Icelandic songstress, songwriter, composer, actress, record producer, and DJ. An all-around kook. Yes. <laughs> Over for four-decade career, she has developed an uh, eclectic musical style that draws upon a range of influences and genres, from electronica to pop to experimental to classical to trip-hop to I... DM to avant-garde to jingle. Yeah. She did that Candy Crush commercial back when it was just starting as a nap. I know. <laughs> uh, she began her musical uh, career at age 11 and first gained international recognition as the lead singer of the alternative rock band called the Sugar Cubes, who in 1987's single Birthday was a hit in the U.S. and U.K. indie stations and a favorite among music critics. After the band broke up, Bjork embarked on a solo career. Uh, in 1993, she definitely came to prominence as a solo artist while collaborating with a range of artists and exploring a variety of multimedia projects. She's one of those musicians that is so unique, you know her A right away. Uh-huh. From the first... Hands down. Bar. You were like, ah! Bjork! Yeah. Um, and is way more influential than you think, to the point that the Museum of Modern Art in New York had a full-scale retrospective exhibit dedicated just to her in 2015. Hmm. Is she a visual artist, too? Yeah, she does multimedia. That's where most of her, like, Grammys and stuff come from. She's also an actress, starring in Lara Zavon Teller's 2000 film Dancer in the Dark, 
for which she won Best uh, Actress Award at the 2000 Cannes. She was also um, nominated for her song with the Oscars. That's where the famous swan, swan dress. dress comes from. Yeah. Um, Oddly enough, the most normal thing I think I've seen her do in quite some time. Uh, she also wrote and performed the music for the film. Lars is apparently one of those directors who has total assholes to their female stars to get an inspired and true performance. Oh, good. We need more of those in the world. Yeah, look up some of the, like, think Hitchcock. Yeah. That level of just... Or that Jag who directed Last Tango in Paris. Apparently it was so uh, emotionally draining, it's the only time she'll ever act. She's already said that. She will never act again. Fair. I don't blame her. There's certain things I never want to do again, like leave my house, but I don't have a multi-million dollar bank account from a record career, so. Uh, I find her inspiring because she gives zero fucks. This is true. Uh, She doesn't care that you think she's weird or if you don't like your music. She just doesn't give a fuck. She didn't give a fuck before she had money. She definitely doesn't give a fuck now. Yep. Uh, She's a huge advocate for environmental causes and Planned Parenthood. She had a box set of seven-inch singles called Seven Inches for Planned Parenthood or something. That was like a promotion (laughs) that she did a couple years ago as a sort of a fundraiser promotion for Planned Parenthood. To, again, do a right, like, just right turn, I guess. Uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Okay. She was a queer African-American woman who was one of the essential figures of in the history of rock and roll. If it was she was not there as a model and inspiration, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, and other rock originators would probably have had very different careers. Yeah, I mean, rock... As you listed yes. off a whole list of white men, rock actually got stolen from the black community, a lot of people will say. So they might have originated it in the white community, but I think it was already around. <laughs> yes. Well, she is African-American. Yes. Um, Sister Rosetta became famous in 1938 with a record called Rock Me. She was a star through the 40s, a black woman singing gospel music to the accompaniment of her own driving electric guitar. She also became one of the first popular recording artists to use heavy distortion on her guitar. Hmm. She was willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her. Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. Her 1945 recording, Strange Things Happen in Every Day, is credited as the first gospel song to cross over into the race, later called the R&B charts, reaching number two and becoming an early model for rock and roll. I'm sorry. That got rolled over fast, and it took me a minute to catch up. The R&B charts used to be called the race charts. Yes, they did. Just the race chart. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. Humanity's terrible. We'll just take a sip on that one. (laughs) She was a sensation, selling at arenas in the 1950s. In 1947, uh, Sister Rosetta was the first person to pull a 14-year-old boy named Little Richard on stage. Hmm. That changed Little Richard's life, and he decided to become right there and then a performer. Yep. She toured and recorded up until her death in 1973 as a result of the stroke. Her legend sort of waned in sort of the 60s. She went to Britain. She did a couple of revival laps around Europe, caravan tours. Um, and sadly, for all her legacy that and what she started, she was buried in an unmarked grave in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. Hmm. 
Luckily, there was a resurgence of interest in her work, which led to a biography, several NPR segments, scholarly articles, and honors. The United States Postal Service issued a 32-cent commemorative stamp in honor of her in 1998. In 2007, she was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. In 2008, a concert was held to raise funds for a marker for her grave. And January 11th was declared Sister Rosetta Tharp Day in Pennsylvania. A gravestone was put on her grave, and the Pennsylvania historical marker was approved for placement at her home. Hmm. In the following year, so 2008, they finally marked her grave. So, two questions. One, was she put into an unmarked grave because she died poor or without family, or just... Oh, it didn't say. Okay. Two, was she a sister, like a religious order? Okay. She just... Took the Just her name, yeah. Yeah. Sister was a... Because she was a big gospel. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. She was married a bunch of times, but... Yeah. She had also relationships with women. Get it, girl. (laughs) Um, Most of them all ended in divorce. I don't think she was married at the end. Um, And on December 13th, 2017, she was elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an early influencer. Good. Sadly, I don't think I'd ever heard of her before today. Uh, again, the only reason I'd heard of her is uh, Alan Cross's History of New Music. Ah. Um, talks about her as one of the four guitar heroes. Got it. Female guitar heroes. One of the first guitar heroes. Right. Female or otherwise. Hmm. Um, Melissa Optimer. Although she's not a guitar hero, she is a one of my rock uh, chick heroes. She's <laughs> Canadian, a kick-ass bassist. Hot. A great song, singer-songwriter and an artist, so she checks all the boxes. Aftermar began performing in 1993 after forming the indie rock band called Tinker while she was a student at Concordia University. Hmm. Uh, she was recru- recruited as the basis for the, uh, well, American alternative rock band Hole in the summer of 1994 <laughs> and was included on several of Hole's releases, including two of their biggest albums, including Celebrity Skin. She left Hole in 1999 and briefly joined the Smashing Pumpkins as a touring member for its 2000 tour before they imploded and then began her solar career. Her debut studio album, Optimar, was released in 2004 on Capitol Records and her second studio album, Out of My Mind, was released in 2010 on her own independent record label. She also collaborated with a bunch of people, um, Rufus Wainwright and the Never Any White Lights, which I think is the song that I included on my playlist. Uh, I love her song with Never Any Light Lights because her vocals can be quite haunting. She's one of those, she's one of the few female bassists that I can think of um, that standed, that really made her stand out in my teen girl brain. Okay. <laughs> Um, and I can say that I feel lucky to be a teen in the early 90s when so many women were in mainstream rock music. Like, that was the decade for rock chicks. Like, some of these women also, um, Mo and Joan Jett, they really benefited from the punk mm-hmm. movement. And then a lot of women in the 90s with grunge and alternative kicking into high gear really, yeah. like the Lilith Fair idea, they just really, like, uh, Jagged Little Pill is still one of the top-selling albums. Yeah. And alternative rock. Uh, let alone just in the 90s. 
Uh, she has now stepped out of the music spotlight and runs her own arts and events space known as Basilica Hudson in Hudson, New York with her husband. Hmm. And he's an independent filmmaker. To go to the other end of the spectrum, we have Sylvia Robinson. She was an American singer, musician, record producer, and record label executive. Okay. She was best known for her work as founder and CEO of the hip-hop label Sugar Hill Records. And she is credited as the driving force between the two landmark singles in the hip-hop genre Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang and the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. This caused her to be dubbed the mother of hip-hop. Good for her. <laughs> and in the 1950, at the age of 15, she began to record for Columbia Records under the alias Little Sylvia. Four years later, she teamed up with a Kentucky guitarist, Mickey Baker, to form a duo known as Mickey and Sylvia. She split with Mickey in 1959, and she started her solo career. After becoming frustrated with the music business, she briefly moved to Paris. Then they came back, her and her husband, and opened a record label called All Platinum Records. With this label, she became a songwriter and a producer in the sort of late 60s to 70s. Also in 1972, she wrote uh, Pillow Talk, which she sent to Al Green, who turned it down because of his religious beliefs. So she ended up turning around and uh, recording it herself. Good for her. Which is also on that playlist, I think. Okay. Um, so it became a huge hit, and its subtly orgasmic gasps and moans predates those of Love to Love You, Baby by Donna Summer. So she was the first to, uh, to make that sort of sultry... To anger parents everywhere, is what you're saying. Ah, uh, yes. And to anger censors. <laughs> uh, in 1970s, the Robinsons founded Sugar Hill Records, uh, which was named after the culturally rich Sugar Hill area of Harlem an affluent African-American neighborhood in Manhattan, New York, um, known as the hub for artists and performers in the early and mid-1990s. The song Rapper's Delight uh, was brought rap into the public mainstream by attaining one of the first commercially successful hip-hop songs and revolutionized the music industry by introducing rap, scratch, and breakdance. Later acts signed to Sugar Hill Records included all-female rap-funk group The Sequence, featuring a teenage Angie Stone, recording as Angie B, who had million-selling hits in the early 80s with Funk You Up. Sugar Hill Records folded in 1985 due to changes in the music industry and competition from other hip-hop labels such as Def Jam and also financial pressures. Sylvia had by then divorced her husband and continued her efforts as a music executive for forming Bon M Records in 1987. The label was noted for signing the act New Style, who later left, but then found success with Naughty by Nature, <laughs> which your 90s child brain should at least remember Naughty by Nature. I should have probably thrown that in there, too. The name doesn't sound familiar. I might recognize it if it played. So those are my ladies. Cool. Yeah, I think I made... Yep, yeah, please read. Go there. I missed a couple of other ladies, but I'll have to put them in my... Your blog post. My blog post. Well, so... As I, I found... Joan Jett and Hildebrand yeah. and... Hildegard. Hildegard, sorry, Hildebrand. <laughs> Where does that come from? I don't know, but it's a word. <laughs> well, it's Hildegard of Bingen, maybe? Yes. 
really glad I don't have to say a lot of those words. Yes. But as I'm finding prepping the show and my show for next week too, you get down these rabbit holes of like awesome women and you're just like, shit, here's another one and another one and another one. And yet, you know, you're leaving like a gajillion on the table. (laughs) These are just like, some of these were women that I really love, like Melissa Optimer. And uh, some of them were just like these really, really crazy sister Rosetta Thorpe and Hilda, whatever her name is. Hildegard. Hildegard, thank you. The historian in me wants to die every time you do that. (laughs) Oh, please. For my story this week, I had a different plan for tonight as we were discussing, and then I had a second different plan for tonight as we also discussed. Uh, I'll come back to both of those plans in the future, but they were both going to end with me saying fuck the patriarchy at least once, but more likely multiple times. And yours was so positive of a story, and I didn't want to be the angry feminist in the room. Today, I'll be that person every other day. That's fine. So I was kind of floating around looking for something to do that complemented yours in terms of media and positivity for women. And it came, I came back to a topic that's been on my list in my notes app for a while. And that's to talk about Tara Butters and Michelle Fazekas. Name sound familiar? Mm, second one. Not... Okay. So... I, I hear of Butters and I think South Park. <laughs> Fair. I'm sorry to her. Fair. Uh, so these ladies led me down my rabbit hole for today, which is powerful women in television. So we'll get back to Butters and Fazekas in a little bit, but first I want to ground us in the topic of women in television in general with some history and facts and figures so we know where we're starting from and where we're going to end up. So quote-unquote television has been around in one rudimentary version or another since the early 1800s, but the forefather of the modern boob tube was invented by Philo Taylor Farnsworth in 1927. Before then, television had been mechanical, so using slides. Um, But Farnsworth used a rudimentary camera and television became electric. Television stations started in the US in the late 20s, early 30s, but it took until 1938 before electric televisions were mass produced and sold to the public. So remember those dates, early 20s, late 30s, before it really takes off into the home. So let's do a lightning round about some details of women in television. Pauline Frederick is a name that we all need to know, and yet I didn't know it until I found her on one of these lists of powerful women in television. She was the first full-time news correspondent in 1948 for ABC, and she made history a second time when she was the first woman to moderate a presidential debate in 1976, which was the debate between Carter and Ford. So even though television had been around for a decade. It was 1948 before a woman was given the microphone and allowed to go report on the news. So, thanks, men. Damn it, I did it! (laughs) Uh, The Donna Reed Show premiered 10 years later in 1958, and it was the first family-focused sitcom that focused on the mother of the family and not the father. So we had that kind of shift. In 1963, Cecily Tyson was was the African-American actress to star in the television drama. See, this is what happens when you play, like, Bjork and... Sorry. Like, Joan Jett back-to-back. I get really thrown off when I'm typing. <laughs> in 1963, 
Cecily Tyson was the first African-American actress to star in a television drama. She played Jane Foster on the show East Side, West Side. And before we think of it as being hella progressive, her character was a secretary. So Better than a maid. Yes, better than a maid. I think that was actually the line in the article I was reading. Like, it wasn't, she wasn't a maid. Like, <laughs> the first character uh, to, like, lead a show that wasn't a maid. So. Five years later, in 1968, Dana Carroll was the first African-American woman to lead a sitcom whose character wasn't a maid. There it is. <laughs> Instead of being a maid, she was a nurse. Again, a f- gendered kind of employment, but... But that is it's what... A, yeah. But that's what it was at that time, too, yes. right? Like... Uh, she made history again. This is uh, Dinah Carroll with a Golden Globe win for her work on the show in 1968. And then again in 1969 as the first black actress nominated for an Emmy. For our generation, Marlo Thomas is probably best known as a drop-in guest star in a bunch of comedies and dramas, usually as someone's mom. But it's only possible to think... Think of her that way uh, because of her start on the television show That Girl, playing Anne Marie, who was the titular character. And that show premiered in 1966. So the show was the first to focus on a woman who was not married or living with her parents, and she remained unmarried for the entirety of the show's run. It reminds me a lot of New Girl, which I wonder if that's. There was like a bit of a nod to that. Especially the title. Yes, exactly. We can't talk these great women on television, though, without mentioning Mary Tyler Moore. Another show that featured a young single woman supporting herself. The show was very popular, but created a lot of waves in 1972 when it suggested that Mary Tyler Moore's character was actually on the pill. (gasps) I literally wrote pause for gasp. Oh my god! Yes. So I guess in the scene, um, she was with her parents, and uh, her mother just shouted out, like, don't forget to take your pill, and both the father and Mary Tyler Moore said, I won't. And that set hairs running down people's mind, and they all thought it was a cue and a nod to the fact that this young single woman was taking responsibility for her own sexuality and terribleness. From the pill to abortion, let's jump from Mary Tyler Moore to B. Arthur and her legendary character Maud, who chose to have and discuss an abortion on the show of the same name. So that was around the same time as well. Jumping forward a few years, uh, we now think of Ellen as the leading light of the LGBTQ community, regardless of some problematic things she does here and there. <laughs> but there was a time when she was much less open about her personal life. Because of mounting pressure from tabloids that was reporting on the possibility that she was gay, Ellen actually used her sitcom, which was airing at the time, uh, to have her character come out as gay. And I remember watching it in real time in 1997, and it was shocking to see that on television. It was the first time it was put on television, but also even then, young feminist Elise was like, yeah, do it. (laughs) So I was cool with it. Um, So she... Her character on the show came out in 1997, and then Ellen came along shortly thereafter with a personal confirmation of her sexuality. So that show was really hard to watch after that happened, and it only lasted another year because it had a like a multi-year run, but in the first few years, it was very much what you would think of a single woman sitcom of like constantly dating men and hopping from one guy to another. And then she comes out, and it's like, well, everything that preceded that is insincere, and it 
it just it never really found its footing after that. Yeah. It was an odd dynamic to watch, and I, you couldn't really relate to the characters anymore. So, yeah, and it was just I think it was that it didn't really regain its own focus. Yeah, because it didn't know how to react to all of that after. True. Very true. Well, let's hop forward to 2006, and now, Shirley, you're saying there can't be any firsts for women on television as late as 2006, but you would be wrong, because Katie Couric that year broke through the gender barrier to become the first woman to anchor a primetime news show alone for one of America's big three networks. So as a reminder, television became popular in personal homes in 1938, and then it was 2006 before somebody let us lady folk sit at a desk and read the news. In the States. In the States. True. True. There was like a lady on BBC anchor in the news for ages. Ages. <laughs> well, in the states, then. Yeah. <laughs> so remember Cecily Tyson from 1963's East Side West Side. Uh, she was the first African American to lead a drama. Well, there was a shameful drought in representation between 1963 because the next time that that happened was in 2012 when Kerry Washington headline scandal. So Cecily Tyson was the lead of a drama in 63, and then nothing. That's true, yeah. For another 50 years until Kerry Washington came along. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, it's pretty shitty. Yes. (laughs) That too. But Kerry Washington kind of broke down that door in a big bad way, because in 2015, Viola Davis won the Emmy for lead actress in drama series for her role on How to Get Away with Murder. And when she won that award, she was the first African-American woman to have done so, ever, and since. And again, we're talking about American TV people. Well, yes. But, like, as Hollywood is the yes. driver of most of the world's yes. consumed media, like, they're the ones giving out the awards people care about. I could care less about the Junos and Canada's Walk of Fame. Yes, but I'm thinking BAFTAs. Like, the, sure. the face of... BBC for years was I don't remember her name but if you think of the Doctor Who episode The Wire yes that was the face of the BBC that lady right was you know the villain yes took the face of the that face but that was like the lady who signed off and and did the news from Alexandria Palace every day right but smaller audience yes less influential in North America at least Slash not at all because we weren't getting the yeah. television channels over here. So uh, she was seen in all the Commonwealth, I'm sure. Uh, depends on yeah. I don't know. She probably listened to all the listen to yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of first Emmy wins for African American women, we have Lena Waithe, who in 2017 won an Emmy for comedy writing for an episode of the show Master of None. And again, she was the first African-American woman to win an Emmy for comedy writing ever. And again, since. So it's only a couple years, but come on. And speaking of representation on the small screen, we have one of Canada's favorite daughters, Sandra Oh, who in 2018 was the first woman of Asian descent to be nominated for an Emmy as the lead actress in a drama. So again, 2018 versus 1938. A very long stretch of time. There is. <laughs> but now let's look at some of the women behind the scenes. <laughs> pun. <laughs> I wrote pun. And talk about producers, writers, and showrunners. And this leads me back to Tara Butters and Michelle Fazekas, the origin of this rabbit hole for me. So who are they, you ask? Their names may not be familiar right off the bat, but their catalog sure as shit will be. 
Because according to IMDb, Butters got her start around 2000 by writing a couple of episodes for the show Ed, which was a flash in the pan. Uh, But she really leaned into her career around uh, Law & Order SVU. Now, either IMDb is missing some details on Butters or Fazekas got her start a little bit earlier um, when she was an assistant to the executive producers on The X-Files. But then they came together as a writing producing team on Law & Order SVU. Together, they were supervising producers on 25 episodes of that show, co-producers on 26, and co-executive producers on 41. So all told, they had their hands in for at least four seasons and were top dogs for two of those seasons. Cool. Yeah. Uh, They were nominated for Writers Guild Awards twice for their work on that show. They then shepherded the very short-lived but very funny show Reaper for the two seasons that it was on air as both the writers and executive producers. Did you ever see that? Vaguely remember this show. Um, it turned, it, like, the main character found out that uh, his father was actually the devil, and he had to do, like, a bunch of tasks for his dad. Uh, yeah. It was, it was a really funny show on the CW. I liked it. I knew about it because uh, Kevin Smith had directed the pilot, I think it was. Okay. And so he was talking about it at the height of the Smod Radio, which I was listening to religiously at the time. So I like sought it out very early pre-Netflix days when you like, had to really work to find streaming TV. Yes. Uh, so uh, it was enjoyable. And I was sad that it only lasted a couple of seasons, but the, the polish did come off a little bit once they lost some control like as soon as it starts making money the network is like ooh I'm gonna claw back on that because we want some so it's still good though also sometimes those sort of more like sci-fi genres they're not supposed to last for a really long time because they they run out of like supernatural (laughs) don't at me supernatural fans we all know like it's still a good show but it's it's coming around to yeah yeah like I loved um, Being Human, but that really had like a shelf life. Some of these shows really do have a shelf life, and yeah. they should stick to them. Yes, fair. Yeah. Being Human, UK, not US. <laughs> All UK shows, I think, start off with a closed loop plan, so. Yeah. yeah. Back to Butters and Fazekas. Um, in addition to Law & Order SVU, and then after Reaper ended, they were writers, consulting producers on shows like Dollhouse and Hawaii Five-O. They have been executive producers for the show Resurrection and Agent Carter. Okay. That was their kind of baby to shepherd through. And the show currently on the air, uh, Kevin Probably Saves the World. Okay, yeah. Which I've never seen. I've heard of because I've seen the commercials for it. Exactly, yes. In fact, they developed and created that show. And at the time then, it was known as The Gospel of Kevin. And then it got changed pre-production, but they got a nice check from the studio for nice. agreeing to sell them that show. So go for it, ladies. <laughs> you do it. This is for you. They even wrote an episode of NCIS LA in 2012 called Touch of Death. <laughs> it was like one line on the IMDb, but I was like, Andy will appreciate that. <laughs> I will. These probably seen that episode. Probably. That's why I threw in the name of the title in case you're like, oh, I know that episode. <laughs> I don't know the titles of any of the episodes. <laughs> I don't know the titles of any episodes of any shows, with the exception of, like, Doctor Who. Yeah. Even some of those, I'm like... It has to be really striking. Like, yeah. The Suitcase, uh, one episode on Mad Men, it's called The Suitcase, to me is, like, 
if you need a writing class in writing television hour-long dramas that's where you go and the name like has stuck with me because it's so powerful these powerhouse producers slash writers made big news in the summer of 2017 when they hashed out an overall deal with abc studios uh they picked up the show kevin probably saves the world and abc studios was so impressed and liked it so much that they sought to lock them down to keep them working with them for years to come variety didn't have an exact number but they did state that it was a very lucrative deal for them both yeah get you your ducats now while butters and physicus are kind of heroines for me because they seem to fly under the radar in mainstream notice but they're defining what that mainstream is. We can't talk powerful women in television without touching on two very important women of color who define TV lineups for decades, and these are Shonda Rhimes and Oprah Winfrey. So let's start with Oprah. She's spoken very um, extensively about her upbringing, so I'll leave it for you to go find more if you don't know, and that's where your interest lays, but I want to focus on her TV career. Also, if you don't know Oprah's background, what rock have you been living under? Yes, I would like to welcome you to the human race. It's 2019. I never was a big, my mom wasn't a big Oprah fan. I was never a big Oprah fan. But I still know Oprah, and I know Oprah's, like, background. Her deal, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When she was 19, Oprah Winfrey started her TV career by becoming a news anchor for a CBS station in Nashville. Uh, So that was in 1973. Three years later, she was made a reporter and co-anchor for the ABC affiliate in Baltimore. And the next year, she became a co-host for a Baltimore morning show. What rocketed her career to the top, however, was a move to Chicago in 1984, where she took over AM Chicago. Within a year, it was renamed The Oprah Winfrey Show, and a year after that, it was nationally syndicated. So it took her a decade to go from being a 19-year-old nobody working as a cub reporter to this massive nationally known syndicated talk show host. Around that time, she also formed her own production company, Harpo Productions, and she has swung dick in a lot of fields. Like, she's got her hand in everything. She introduced her book club on her show in 1996, and the books that she chose would fly to the top of bestseller charts. She started two magazines, one of which has uh, since folded. It only lasted a couple of years, but O is still running. She co-founded Oxygen Media in 1998, which promptly launched a cable channel. And that's what we had as the women's network here in Canada for a while was Oxygen. So that's how we got to know her TV empire that way. In 2006, she started a satellite radio station, the Oprah Winfrey Network. A cable station took over the Discovery Health station in 2011 after some serious negotiation. But then she subsequently sold a large portion of her network back to Discovery, but stays on as an advisor slash contributor to their networks. Uh, She currently has a weekly interview show that airs on Oxygen, and she is now a special correspondent to 60 Minutes. Isn't it just called O? Or is it called Oxygen? Now it's O. I think it got rebranded to O. Yeah. Or OWN. Oprah Winfrey Network? Yeah. Yeah, OWN. I don't have cable anymore, so it's been a while. I don't changed. have that, but I remember like <laughs> seeing the for that um, interview show. And Super Soul Sunday or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's apparently a podcast, too. I just, I don't think I can take that much positivity in my life at any one time. <laughs> no. 
Uh, her work gave her platform and a bank account that lets her engage in a lot of philanthropic work. She's an advocate for girls' education, child abuse survivors, and racial and gender equality. Oprah's worked long and hard and paved a lot of roads, and one of the women that benefited from this work was uh, Shonda Rhimes, who is now clearly one of her contemporaries. So Rhimes' career began in Hollywood in the mid-1990s, where she took a bunch of small jobs on movies and documentaries, doing some writing um, and some kind of production work. She co-wrote the script for HBO's movie Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, which came out in 1999. And the big kind of lightning rod around that movie was that it was one of the first major roles for Halle Berry and skyrocketed her career uh, at the same time. Oh, jeeks. Yeah. Uh, Her next project was in 2001, where she wrote the screenplay for, and buckle up here, Crossroads, the Britney Spears vehicle. Yeah. Uh, Probably erasing that one off the hold. Well, regardless of that, somebody decided to give her another shot, and she wrote the sequel for The Princess Diaries, which wasn't as as good as the first one, but it was much better than Crossroads, so middle ground. A lot of things are better than Crossroads. True. Two by four to the back of the head is probably better than Crossroads. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> she wrote her first TV script in 2003, but it wasn't picked up. Uh, her big success came along with the 2005 hit Grey's Anatomy, which debuted as a mid-season replacement on ABC, and the rest from there is history. This follow-up to Grey's Anatomy was Private Practice in 2007, Scandal in 2011, and then How to Get Away with Murder in 2013. There were some smaller shows in there that ran for a season or two or that were just never picked up. But when you look at the powerhouse block that she has produced, those shows are inconsequential, really. She's also gone down in the history books of women in television as she's the first woman to create three hit shows that have more than 100 episodes apiece. And she clearly has her eye on the horizon because in 2017, she signed a multi-year exclusive deal with Netflix, wherein all of her original productions would be released as Netflix original series for the length of that contract. Her first show under the deal will be based on a New York Magazine story about Anna Delvey, who was a woman who scammed her way into New York's high society. So even just the content matter, it's almost guaranteed to be an interesting show, coupled with her ability to write and create characters. So I'm looking forward to that. Her work has won awards from the Writers, Directors, and Producers Guilds of America because she has her hands in so many of those different aspects. She's won an NAACP Image Award, and she's won awards and recognition from GLAAD, and she's been nominated for several Emmys. So if you want to keep up on all things women in television, then I strongly suggest you check out the blog womenandhollywood.com. They have news about women who are working and accomplishing amazing things in television, movies, literature, music, everything. Headlines this week in the TV section, for example, feature stories about women writers who are directing their first series, the plans to reboot the Miss Marple books as a new series. I figured you'd be super excited about that. I love to be some Agatha Christie. I know you do. (laughs) Um, It's being led by a female production company. So us ladies are keeping the content matter at home. And the blog also has information about shows that are getting picked up featuring big names. For example, Brie Larson um, is heading an hour-long drama about a CIA agent and just got a full series commitment from Apple. Woohoo! So... 
this website in particular, but also this entire kind of story made me realize that we need to talk about projects that are being led by women and featuring women. And we have to spread the word to one another so that we all go out and consume this media and show the studios that there's an audience here for that. So here's my pitch in that regard. Do yourself a favor and check out Dairy Girls on Netflix. Have you seen it yet? No. Okay. The most recent things I've seen on Netflix are The Fry Festival and Abducted in Plain Sight. And that's... <laughs> and Peppa Pig. <laughs> Peppa Pig. And... Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm telling you, set aside some time to watch Dairy Girls. Series one is currently on Netflix. It's short, of course, because it's British. So there's only six. Sorry, it's not British. It's Irish. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for saying that. Uh, It's six episodes. uh, And it's an import from Irish Channel 4 from earlier this year. And season two is out and about shortly. I'm going to get in trouble for saying it's a British show because it's set in Northern Ireland during the 1990s and focuses on the life of four teenage friends during the Troubles. (laughs) which was the Irish trying to kick out the English for being dicks about the whole thing. So the, the main focus of the show are these four uh, girlfriends and one of them, their male cousin, gets sent to Ireland to live with her family up from London. So you've got this weird dynamic of like one boy in the mix and they go to a Catholic girls' school, but because he's a Londoner or English at the time of the troubles, they didn't want to send him to the boys' school where he'll probably get killed. So they sent him to the girls' school instead. Just oh my God. (laughs) Hilarity ensues. Uh, They navigate through all the angst of being a teen while also growing up during the troubles under an English military occupation and in a strict Catholic community. So the charm of the show is that they're all pitch perfect teenage archetypes. You've got the weirdo, the wild child, the goody two shoes, and the one who's kind of in the middle, but quirky. Uh, But with that, they're also really dumb teenagers. And that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. Like the, the wild child wants to get drunk and she's trying to be fancy. So she lights the shots on fire and then picks up the tray they're sitting on and of course drops it and yeah so the hollywood reporter article that i read on it compares it to the show the in-betweeners which is another show that i love and i completely agree have you ever seen that one i've seen bits and pieces of it yeah i love that show it's so good not only is the show centered on the female characters but it was also created and written by woman lisa mcgee and the show is literally just hilarious. I had to stop myself from spit-taking uh, after a one-liner where the goody two-shoes was, like, they're all five of them pulled into the principal's office in front of a nun and uh, made to answer for what they did. And the goody two-shoes just, like, cracked under no pressure and started ratting them all out. And the nun, who's the principal, kind of looks at them in dead pans and goes, I think we all lost a bit of respect for you there, Claire. <laughs> So there's just a lot of these one-liners that are just, like, rolling around funny. It's also just a really poignant piece, um, not just for the time and place where it was set, but also it just reminded me so much of what it was like to be a teenager. Like, it's really sincere in that representation of that time of life. And, yeah, they do really extreme stupid things, but at the end of the day, like... They faked, like, they claimed there was a miracle that they saw Mother Mary crying in a statue. And they, like, fake that. And it was all to, like, get out of an exam. So, (laughs) no, I have never seen a statue of Mary cry. But, like, I can understand the panic of not wanting to write that exam. (laughs) Like, 
So it's that sincerity that like really hit home with me. So I strongly recommend every go one go out and watch the show and consume the shit out of it. So they keep making it because it's just so good. I will definitely. Yeah. <laughs> So that is my tour through some powerful women in television. But like I said, you leave so many on the table, like Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, like all the women on Saturday Night Live who have ever come through Saturday Night Live and are still there. Like, there's just so many of them. You just can't get to them all in one sitting. Uh, One of the women I was looking at for my women in music Mm -hmm. was actually, um, and it's not because I'm a Doctor Who fan that I sought this out, but it was because she kept coming up on these influential women's lists. Oh, yeah. It was actually, um, and I don't remember her name now, um, she created the theme song for okay. Doctor Who, like the original theme song, right. which is in many iterations. Yeah. So it was that sort of weird, like, electronic... Ooh, yeah. So she sort of... And she was working at the BBC, and... Uh, yes, while I was prepping for the show, I... Um, like I said, was going to write it in the evening. So I was getting into the shower and I was playing your music and I was listening to that and I was thinking what I was going to write about. And I was like, I should really write about Verity, whoever, who was like the production, the driver behind Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I just never got there. Yeah. So between her and the, the music lady, clearly Doctor Who. And even Doctor Who in the new Who was one of the executive producers was a woman. Oh, yeah. Um, she was um, Steve Moffat's. And I think she was uh, Russell T. David's partner, too. So she hmm. was spanning those two. She, she uh, left also with Steve Moffat. Um, but it was helmed by women from a long ago. Like, there you go. Doctor Who was very women-driven in many regards, actually. Yes. And I only remember the name Verity because it's such an odd name. I don't remember her last name at all. (laughs) So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If you would like to know more about the show and Andy and I, if you want to see where we're getting all of our information for our stories, head over to our website at www.rabbitholespodcast.com. If you want to email us with suggestions for a rabbit hole or to tell us about rabbit holes that you love, our email address is rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. While you're on the website, check out our merch tab, which directs you to the Redbubble store that we have so you can get all your rabbit holes podcast gear. And as mentioned, also take a stroll to our support tab to get the link to our Patreon page to help support us. We did some vision boarding a couple of weeks ago and one of our goals is to at least let make the show be self-supporting so it's less of a financial burden not that it's too burdensome on us so we're hoping to at least earn what the soundcloud premiums oh, sorry every month yeah so i don't think we're swinging too big on that <laughs> uh also we've already reached one of our goals because you can now find us on spotify yes they cleaned up their act i got my shit together and then the two of those things came together and we got there. So we're now on Spotify, searchable. We have five people who have subscribed so far, the last time I checked. One of them being me. God damn it, Andy. You can't Don't ruin me. the numbers. <laughs> well, one of them is me because I shared an account with Dan, so now he can get it easily. Oh, Dan. <laughs> He's a legitimate listener. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, then he should head over to Patreon page. <laughs> Uh, so yeah that's our website where you can find us Andy tell us about social media so you can find us on social media you can find us on Twitter at face uh, Facebook <laughs> sorry I'm like just mesmerized by you fixing your eye okay. sorry I started laughing I started crying now I have eyeliner in my face <laughs> and like I do that yeah I know I always I pull my eyes back it's 
in like very a, dis- it's very, in a very in a very terrible Miley Cyrus kind of way. Um, yes, you can find us on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod. You can find us on Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast and on Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page. Mm-hmm. We have general uh, daily mostly daily content that we put up. Um, You can reach us there. You can message us. We're pretty good to answer. And and just check out all the stupid memes that I find throughout the day. Or that at least sends you well high and then forgets about. Yes. And then she's (laughs) delighted by it. I have to be like, um, you said that to me, but I think you were high at the time. Oh, that Bob Ross one like really put me out on the floor at my office. I started laughing so hard. I was like, I love it. And he's like, you sent it to me. (laughs) I was like, fuck. I tried the Kush that weekend. It was a rough, rough weekend. <laughs> so, uh, if you like us, review us. Give us a great review. Or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher. I can't remember if Spotify has a rating system. I can't remember either. Um, Google Play does not, those bastards. Uh, or you can also give us a recommendation and a rating on Facebook. Yes. Share your, share the love around because yeah. recommendations are how word gets out about podcasts these days. Yes. Yeah. So there's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Which is funny, you were talking about, like, Ellen coming out in 1997, and I was thinking, like, I didn't really watch Ellen. It wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan even before it sort of went. I watched it a little bit. But I remember, like, I was like, what am I watching in 1997? I was watching Queer as Folk. (laughs) Because it was on Showcase, sort of, after 11. Yes. It would be Queer as Folk, like the UK version. Yeah. So Russell T. David's original show. Ah. And um, Oz would come on after it. Oh. So I would already have to be home from being out, even though I was like 16, 17 at the time. Yeah. My my curfew was 11, because I had to have the car home, ah. or myself home at 11. Um, so I'd, I'd like stay up and watch like Late Night Showcase. So I'd watch like Queer as Folk and Oz, which both very provocative yeah. shows. Yes. I'm not sure I could... I've never watched Oz because I'm a little bit younger than you, so it yeah. was off my radar. Um, but I know of it, and I know what it is, but I also know that I love Elliot Stabler too much to want to watch it and possibly ruin that. Yes, because <laughs> he is a prison guard, correct? Yes, I think he's a prison guard. Oh, I thought he that. was a prisoner. Maybe. He's a real... But, like, no one on that show is good. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so I was like, but... But Elliot. <laughs> a lot of the first season is uh, narrated by, and I can't remember his name, but he plays Mercutio from like Romeo and Juliet, like the Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes version. Okay. And he plays a wheelchair bound um, prisoner, mm. but he and he narrates a lot of like sort of first seasons, right. and that's what I really remember. And it was just this like really powerful, very gritty, very graphic. Yes prison show yes and uh i don't know if i could watch it now but i definitely was watching the shit out of that at like 16 17 i know there's so much though that like just doesn't hold up once you become an adult like sex and the city we're talking about it with Anne. like i can't watch that show now it's I painful i don't know if it's just that it wouldn't hold up because i think it's still probably fairly timely but it's just i don't know if i can deal with that graphicness mm, as that's adults. fair <laughs> that's fair <laughs> so i'm like 
maybe I just don't want to see prison rapes. Like that makes me think of like I recently had the fall. Like I fell again and jacked up my knee, so I ended up being in the ER for a while. And they were showing America's Funniest Home Videos on the overhead, and like I was texting you, like I can't watch this as an adult because now I understand what it means to be so injured and have a mortgage that like. It's not funny that somebody, like, falls off their roof because that could fucking bankrupt them. I can't watch the show as an adult without thinking about all the consequences of these dumb mistakes. I know. <laughs> Especially I used, something like that. Like, I used to fucking love that show as a kid. Like, that was my Sunday night. I had my bath, and then I got to watch it with my dad, and then I had to go to bed. So, like, yeah. and we're talking, like, Danny Tanner, like, uh, era. What's his face? Yes. A Bob Saget. Bob Saget. And I used to love it, and now I watch it, and I'm just like... You are an irresponsible adult, sir. Yes. You look like you're at least 30. Don't jump off your roof onto the bouncy house castle to land in the wading pool that you have in front of it. Think it through. But there's a lot of that in <laughs> all of these guys. There's like if that part of like, ooh, let's do that. That sounds true. fun. And you're like, you should not be doing this. If they're not 16 anymore. If they were to put up at the bottom of the screen where the video comes from, that would be different. Because I could laugh at the ones from Canada because we have free healthcare. So yeah. it's just, everything is a challenge, right? Like fucking six friends in a canoe onto a frozen lake down a hill. That's just fun times. So we have free healthcare. So it doesn't yeah. really matter. But like, you like the one injury I had with like a sprained knee would probably cost forty thousand dollars if I had gone into an American ER. That's true. To wait for four and a half hours to see a doctor for three minutes to be told it's sprained, that would fucking bankrupt me. <laughs> I'd be hobbling around here nonstop for the rest of my life. <laughs> so just watching it, I was just, yes, I get the odds thing. Like as an adult, we just have different levels of comfort. <laughs> you, it's prison rape. Me, it's dumb boys jumping off of roofs. <laughs> 